0: I would like to, uh, at this time, share some thoughts and challenges from the scriptures. And so, as a community, we've been going through one of the sections of the Bible that teaches about Jesus and his life. It's called Luke. It's about three-quarters of the way through the Bible, if you're flipping through. Um, And we've reached the 18th verse of the 18th chapter. As soon as you're there, please feel free to stand with me as I read the Word of God. Just after Jesus um, uh, sees some little children and teaches about um, them coming to him and having childlike faith... We read verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother. All of these things I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Upon hearing this, Jesus answered him, But you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is possible, impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We've left all that we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them. No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come eternal life. These are the very words of God. Okay, if anybody's still looking for seats, there's some right over here. And that's it. Um, Well, and okay, so um, this is a very interesting story, uh, very well known. It's written in three out of the four books of the Bible that talk about Jesus' life. Obviously had some uh, dramatic effect on some of the disciples for them to all kind of be talking about this. And... um, I find it very interesting that we get to uh, engage with this person because normally when we see characters in uh, the, the, the Gospels, it's something that we have to do a lot of work to translate to figure out what they're really thinking and what's really going on with them as we watch from our grassy spot in the West and look East and see them. But this uh, man provides us with a great opportunity because he's very wealthy He's very religious, and he's confused. Three things that we all really get here in uh, West Michigan pretty naturally. So we can interact with this person without doing a ton of digging to figure out kind of what's really going on there. So uh, I'll strike while the iron's hot. Here uh, we see a man who feels that, that comfortable enough to approach Jesus with a very big question. Do you know Jesus like that? This isn't somebody who just is um, new to the Bible. Like, I mean, I, I get those questions. Sometimes it's really great to find somebody who's just humble and doesn't know anything and just wants to talk about God. Okay, This isn't that person, though. This is somebody who is very well-educated. At least he's been in the Word, and he's a Torah-observant Jew, and he's got money. You'd think that he would have all the answers. Or at least he's beyond the point where he's able to ask questions. Because there is a certain point when you're learning where you're like, okay, this is, I should know this by now. I can't really uh, ask this question anymore. Kind of like when you know that you've met somebody more than three times, but you still can't remember their name. It's beyond the point. Like, they remember your name. They remember your kids' names. They know everything about you. and You can't be like, what's your name again? It's just inappropriate. This guy's to the point where you can't ask questions anymore in our culture, or it's something that's frowned upon. Jesus does not make him feel bad. I don't see Jesus ever making someone feel bad for coming to him with a humble heart saying, I've got questions. We don't do a good job letting each other know that you can have doubts. You can be in transition. You can have things that you're wrestling with because we're for sometimes uh, afraid of people having different opinions or afraid of, of different things, but... Jesus is not intimidated by someone coming to him with a really serious question. Do you know that, that, that you can do that? He's not intimidated by somebody having a doubt about where he's going to end up or what's going to happen with his, the rest of his uh, life. He's not intimidated by someone wrestling with him. Jesus actually welcomes this. God welcomes this. He named his people wrestles with God. Israel. Jacob wrestled with God and did not let him go until he was blessed. What did Jacob get? A new name and a limp. The limp that Jacob had was not a sign of weakness, but it actually is a sign of strength, a sign of perspective, and something that I trust when I see somebody who's wrestled with God walking with a limp. It's something that we should uh, seek out. Being able to... Actually critically engage with what God is doing isn't weakness, it's taking it seriously. What's happening with this guy is he has elevated things above God, and in his search for different things, has um, realized he's come to a point, I believe, where things are starting to crumble for him, and it 's just not working out. Notice he uses the word "inherit." Why would he say that? Nobody goes around asking how to inherit something. Inherit, I mean, we don't even have to translate that. We inherit things when people die. Our, you know, family, you know, members leave us things that we just get sort of randomly. I I would never ask, how do I inherit things? I mean, it's just, that's an inheritance. Even in context... He's a Torah observant, wealthy Jewish person. He should uh, know any child of Abraham should assume he's a great candidate, just as he is, to inherit uh, messianic favor. Apparently, something that this guy has been told his entire life just isn't working for him anymore. And he's got doubts and a question, and he's trying to figure this out. Is anybody familiar with the term uh, in the film business, MacGuffin? A MacGuffin. One person, can anybody name uh, name one? Can you name one? What's a MacGuffin? I know what you're thinking right now. Usually it's Hebrew words that no one knows, and shoot, finally an English word, and you don't know the answer. (laughs) The one time. (laughs) A MacGuffin is, uh, is, a, is something in a, a film or a story that everything's kind of revolving around and motivating uh, members of the cast to do uh, outrageous things. It's the thing that everybody wants, and they'll move mountains to get. They'll reject all temptations to live a content, satisfied life, and they have to uh, move forward to get this thing. So if I say the word... Um, Maybe the name's on the briefcase. Oh, Samsonite. That's a MacGuffin. You know, if I say, you know, what's Tom Cruise dangling from the ceiling uh, on this computer sweating from his glasses to get this list of names? Nobody really knows what the list of names, it's just the thing that everybody wants to get. Uh, the Probably the most famous one, especially in our community, uh, is One ring to rule them all. It's this thing that everybody's trying to get and would do anything to get. We have MacGuffins in our own life. You know, uh, it could be a spouse. You know, if you don't admit it, everybody around you probably knows what it is that you're trying to get, this thing. It could be financial uh, security. It could be uh, possessions. It could be um, a noble cause this is thing that's driving us to move mountains in order to get to, uh, for us to to say no to all temptations of being content, and for us to uh, do outrageous acts in order to finally achieve. The only difference between MacGuffins in our life and the ones in the movies is the end of the movie. There's a uh, cursive thing that says "happily ever after." The end, right? That that's how the movie ends. And you assume that they just live happily ever after. I mean, nobody sees the Dread Pirate Roberts and Princess Buttercup two months after they, you know, get married and are fighting about who's taking out the trash or not. It's it's just this uh, fantasy that everything's going to be fine. Our lives is different because we actually get the thing that we work so hard at getting and then very quickly realize that it's not going to keep us happy or in any way be sustaining satisfaction. It actually becomes a monument to our misery. And it's something that mocks us and saying, haha, I tricked you. You thought that I was going to make you happy. But really, you should have bought the 2.0. But really, you should have bought this. But really, you know, you should have married this. And, And it's just constant pain. I have a point to this. There, I think, is a mug often in this text. That's why I was saying that. Okay, so in, uh, I think, uh verse 18, you see the word eternal life. In verse 22, you see treasure in heaven. In verse 24 and 25, you see kingdom of God. In verse 26, you see saved. In verse 30, you see uh, king, uh, eternal life and age to come. All of these are to do with the same thing. It's really a messianic age or a time where God's king comes and uh, rules the world and brings global peace and rights all of the wrongs and redeems, you know, earth. Very similar to the feeling that we get when we say the word heaven. Just different location usually. Uh, When when we, the purest form of heaven. Not like the all-inclusive resort heaven. um, But like... You know, God's place. And so let's just, I'm just going to use the word heaven so that we can connect with kind of the the thing that this guy is feeling. I think that he has made heaven a MacGuffin. My question is, should we? I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus, except for myself. Because I grew up under the impression that heaven was the point. To this faith, I don't know if anybody necessarily told me that, and so I, you know, I can't blame anybody but me. But I really revolved around getting to heaven. And uh, you can even see that when I was a teenager and I was asked to go witness. Does anybody know the word witness to someone? And what I would say to them was, if you died tonight, where would you go, heaven or hell? Which in retrospect, if that was ever to happen to me, I would probably think this verse is threatening my life. If you died tonight, where would you go? Okay, this guy's got a bomb. I got to get out of here or something. Like what? What's the point of that question? It's the, to scare or to, to motivate someone to really consider uh, their eternal uh, place. Or you know, uh, but really, the plan would then be: How do I just get to heaven? What do I going to do? What am I going to say? Nobody ever came up to me to do that, but nobody had to. I was already asking myself, uh, Am I going to heaven? How do I figure out that I'm going to go to heaven? I never felt like I could just rest in that reality. What I would do is I formed a plan that is, you know, to just keep watch over myself. And as soon as I was about to die, I would pray a prayer of repentance, hypothetically. I would then, you know, commit my life to God and tell him how much I love him. As if I would then make the transition into the age to come, and I would be standing before the Lord, and he would be looking at me and think, don't I know you from somewhere? Oh yeah, that's right. You're the kid that was just praying to me about how much you love me and all this, you know, repentance. Too bad you just died. What a coincidence. Imagine if you would have just lived the rest of your life in honor of me. Oh well. Oh well enter in anyways, enjoy the party. Where I would probably say thanks, just glad to be here. I know, crazy story, right? (laughs) However, this never actually worked. I grew up in age before, we did not have internet or cell phones or things to do inside, and I, for the most part, did things that were moderately dangerous all the time. And so I probably almost died 15 or 20 times. I had dinner last night with one of my childhood friends who we were swimming one day and almost got run over by a speedboat. Actually, he did get run over by the speedboat. I just almost got run over by the speedboat. And I remember thinking things, but it was not thinking Christian things i I mean I remember saying words, but it was not this prayer to God and this commitment to of the rest of my life to him. It was, oh my gosh, it's happening uh, it was this, <laughs> this is I mean, this is it It really only happened when I was like having a nightmare, and I was about to you know die in a dream, and then I'd be like waking up praying this prayer and then, you know, shamefully realizing it was just a dream and saying a false alarm, you know, to myself. And I have made heaven this thing that was just outside of my reach. And I had to figure out ways that I could make sure that this uh, was going to come to me. Should this be our, uh, our pursuit? Is heaven a good MacGuffin? I don't think so. I think a better question to ask ourselves would be, if God decided to leave heaven and live in hell, and gave you the option whether or not you wanted to live there or live there, what would you choose? Because this is uh, the response that Jesus gives him. Why do you call me good? Only God is good. Why would Jesus say that to him? It, you know, if this was just a pure question about how to get to heaven. Why would Jesus say that anyways? he's good, why wouldn't he, you know, take someone to say good teacher to him? I think it's because if God is not only good, if God alone is not good to you, and there's all these other good things that we're chasing after and trying to get, we will then constantly be uh, achieving those goals, but feeling utterly unsatisfied If God alone is good for you, then it makes sense of all the other things that he has placed around us because then he starts to show us himself in all of these things. But if it's God is good, sex is good, money is good, marriage is good, companionship is good, and I'm just after all of these mutually good things, we will continue this pattern of not being satisfied and being let down. God alone is good. And when God is, uh, and when Jesus is saying that we need to uh, not solely just pursue idols, is what the Bible calls I'm calling it a MacGuffin. If, if, uh, If we're not to just solely pursue those things, it's not so that we just sit around and be miserable, boring people. I think God is saying to us, you already are miserable for the most part. You already are unfulfilled and not satisfied. I'm not trying to make you miserable. This is what is going on. But in your misery, I can bring truth, satisfaction, and value. I can bring into your misery uh, substance. This is the God that I find in the Bible. Not one that wants to exist in a painless uh, life, but one that left heaven to move somewhere else. And then invites us to, to come with him. And invites us to move into painful situations and bring substance and bring value and show the gospel. It's kind of like those of us who seek to save our lives will lose it. But those of us who seek to lose our lives for him, we'll find it. Rod's going to share on the rest.
1: <laughs> yeah, you looked at your watch. <laughs> you were short, very. So that's this uh, rich young ruler. Now I want to highlight Jesus' response. His response here, I think, is something that we have to think about. To me, it's shocking. What is his response? The man comes to him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's his answer? Believe on my name and you shall be saved. Is that what he says? What's his answer? Obey God. Keep the commandments. You know Torah. Keep it. I want us to think about that. Because this is not the first time where a man comes to Jesus with the same question. A, A rabbi in Luke 10 comes to Jesus with the same question. What must I do, Jesus, to inherit eternal life? Jesus' answer? Obey God, keep Torah, the commandments, and you'll live. See, this is why I think so many Christians avoid the teachings of Jesus. Now I have a very good idea of what Jesus is, is doing with this man. He, he, he's, through his answer, exposing him. But before I get to that, I want us to see today, especially as we start a new year, what a big deal the scriptures were to Jesus. He had a very, very high view of the scriptures, which he called Torah, which unfortunately Christians today call law. And contrary to what most Christians think, Jesus did not come to do away with the Torah, the law, or to go around it, or to improve upon it. Or to replace it. In fact, Jesus says, he says, I did not come to abolish Torah, but I came to show the world what it means and how to keep it. In fact, if you would ask Jesus what discipleship is, Jesus would say, this is what discipleship is. Discipleship is, is someone who follows me as I follow uh, God's path. And, and what is God's path, Jesus? Jesus would say, God's path is Torah. Come follow me as I walk the path of Torah. And this is why Jesus says things like, you know where it says, do not murder? (laughs) But I say to you, anyone who just calls someone a moron is guilty of hell. What's Jesus doing there? He's teaching us not only what Torah means, not only is he interpreting it, but he's teaching us how, how, how this gets walked out. Or he says things like, you know where it says, do not commit adultery. But let me tell you what I mean, but, but what that means. Anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in his eyes has committed adultery in his heart. Again, Jesus is not abolishing Torah. He's teaching us what it means so we can walk it out. Now, why do I say all of this? Because more and more, I'm seeing something within Christians today. And I'm going to say this as lightly as I can. I feel like right now I'm in the, a, a coach in the locker room, okay? We've become wimps. We've become soft. When it comes to, to, to such things as, as obedience, we can't even talk about obedience anymore. We can't even talk about, uh, being a sinner who, who sins. We, we, we can't even hardly talk about God's holiness anymore. Uh, we, we can't talk about such things as contrition and repentance. We, we don't like these hard things. We, we, we run to all the soft things. The nice things. It's like some of us need God to be the Santa Claus. But see, it's the hard truths that draw us to the best things about God. And it's the hard truths, truths like God is holy, and and the fact that we're sinners who sin, and that God gets angry about our sin. It's these things that actually lead me to do the very things that bring about change in my life. It leads me to do things like to have a contrition of heart, to confess my sins, and to repent. I don't know why we become so touchy, but this man, he, he too is touchy. He's fragile. He, he's so intent on, on thinking that he's more than he really is so that when Jesus says to him, uh, I want you to, to keep Torah, what's his answer? Oh, yeah, I've done that. i with this man, kid, perfectly, and see, so what I think is going on with this man is that his, his, his riches, his wealth, have blinded the true condition of his heart, and this is one of the great dangers of riches. Riches have a way of inflating our view of ourselves, because in, in, in obtaining money, in obtaining wealth, uh, we start to think things like, I did that, I accomplished that, I achieved that. And then all of a sudden, this self-absorption starts to take place in our lives. And then we apply that to God. And we start to think of ourselves more than we really should spiritually and morally. And I think that's this man. I mean, here's his question. What must I do to achieve eternal life? See, it's all about him. It's all about his performance. It's all what he could do can achieve. And Jesus says, well, obey God. And he says, I've done that. I've, I've achieved that to perfection. But here's the thing with Jesus. He has eyes that can see right through a person. And he can see right into a person's heart. And what he sees in this man is that there is a hole in this man's heart. He says, one thing you're lacking. You're lacking something. And see, we we automatically just run to the money part and think think that this man's problem is with, with money. I think it's deeper than that. I think the deeper issue is this man's need for perfection, his attempt to save himself, to be his own savior through his own performance. And Jesus all sh- shatters all of this when he says, you know, sir, you lack something. And then Jesus puts his finger on the thing that this man lacks. And he says, go sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And what's the man's response? It's honest. There's no pretense here. It says, the man went away sad. In fact, this word for sadness here, it it, it literally means to be horrified with grief. In fact, the only other time that this word for sadness is used again in the New Testament is Jesus in Gethsemane. When Jesus says, my soul is grieved. Jesus is horrified in Gethsemane at what? At the thought of losing the thing he loves most. His father. The love of his life. His ultimate treasure, his identity, his, his protection, his sense of worth. And Jesus, it says, his soul was horrifically sad. And I think this is exactly what's going on with this man. The thought of losing his money, which is more than money. It's, it's the center of his life. It's the thing he loves most. It's his security. He, his, his sense of identity makes him horrifically sad. And I guess the saddest part of this whole story is he can't give it up. And now his imperfection is, is exposed because this man who thinks he's perfect can't even keep the first commandment which says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then Jesus says, It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. That might be like saying it's a snowball's chance in hell. For the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't look around the room right now and try to find some rich people and wondering, wow. We're all rich. And what Jesus just said is it's impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And I want to know then what Jesus is saying. Why is he saying it? He's saying this not only about riches, but he's saying about really anything. You can't earn enough morally. You can't earn enough spiritually. You can't earn enough materially to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's impossible. And a lot of times, I've noticed that these two things, that spiritual riches and moral and material riches oftentimes go, go hand in hand. I mean, I think sometimes we think that the materialistic person is polar opposite to, to the super spiritual person. But really underneath the, the, that person, that, that need to be rich... Or for that other person, that need to be super spiritual is oftentimes the same root sin. And I think we see both of these sins in this man. It's the sin when we take ourselves so seriously. It's the sin of pride. It's the sin when we think it's all about us. It's all about what we do. It's all about what we can achieve. It's all about what we perform and, and give to God. And you can be a spiritual show-off and you can be a materialistic show-off. Hey, look at the car I drive. Look at the house I live in. Look at the vacations I get to go on. Hey, everybody, look how much I pray. I fast twice a week. I give my money to the poor. It's the same root sin. It's pride. And they both lead to the same thing. Despair. Because any attempt to be godlike in and of ourselves, whether it be what we have materially or what we think we are spiritually, when we do this deep down though, we know there is something still lacking that we are not godlike. See, when life is all about you, you're never gonna be enough, you're gonna never have enough, you're never gonna achieve enough, you're never gonna perform enough, and if you're honest enough, You'll be depressed. Solution? We just flat out need to come to the end of ourselves. Where we realize that in and of ourselves, we are seriously lacking and that we have a huge hole in our hearts that we could never on our own fill. And more so, that when it comes to God, it's impossible, utterly impossible, for anyone to achieve heaven, or him. Sometimes I hear people say this, they'll they'll say things about another person, they'll be like, man, it would take a huge miracle for that person uh, to get saved. And right away, I I, I usually don't say it, but I'm thinking it, I'm, I'm just thinking, oh really, and you weren't a huge miracle? We are all walking miracles. Anything we have, anything that we are spiritually right now, it's all God. As Jesus says, only God is good. Now, I believe that if this text were preached properly today, all of us would be walking away sad. Sad. And that if God were gracious enough right now, that He right now would be putting His finger on specific things in our life, things that we're looking to, things that we think are going to exalt us and purify us and cleanse us and save us. Is He doing that right now? Is Jesus putting a finger on anything right now? That's His grace. For this rich man, it was His riches. In his moral perfection, he said, all these things I've kept, it's like he's hanging on to this, his moral report card, and his moral performance as the thing that saves him, and he's hanging on to his money, but if Jesus is really going to be this man's savior, then he needs to stop thinking of money as his savior. What's Jesus putting his finger on right now? It is a gracious thing of God when God starts putting his finger on different things that are in my heart that are greater loves than my love for God. Because at the end of the day, whatever those loves are, those loves aren't going to love me the way Jesus will love me, and they're certainly not going to satisfy me, and most importantly, they're not going to save me. Only Jesus can fill the hole in our hearts. As Augustine said it, God has made us for himself and our souls are restless until we rest in him. I think really if we want to get serious about that today, it requires some steps. It requires two things. It requires first verse 21 This man says, all these I've kept. He's hanging on to them. He's clinging to to these things as his saviors. We have to identify what the saviors are in our life. And then verse 28 is the next step. After identifying them, we got to let go of them. As Peter says, we've left this. We've left this. And Jesus said, that's right. Anyone who leaves this, that, and, and takes hold of me and follows me. If there's a formula, that's it. What are you hanging on today? Clinging to. For some, it could be a boyfriend. It could be a girlfriend. It could be your job. It could be money. It could be the next gadget. Could be a success, could be achievement. What are you hanging on to? What's keeping you from following Jesus with your whole heart? We have put cards on your, on your chairs. We love to put stakes in the ground. We love to uh, make decisions. I'm telling you, if Jesus right now is putting a finger on something right now that's staying in the way of you, following him with everything you have, I encourage you, take that card right now and write out what that thing is. All we know about this man is that he went away sad. Is that what we want to be this morning? Just a, a family of people that just kind of walk away sad when we can actually do something about this. if you want the big reason for for why we we can do something about this i in in mark's gospel uh mark gives us this detail about this story he says first of all this guy's called a rich young ruler and 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 mark includes that jesus looked at him and loved him I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's going on here? Because it's the only time in the Gospels where it specifically says, and Jesus loved this person. Well, I think Jesus, who also is about 30 years old, is also a rich young ruler who left everything. He left the glory of the family of the Trinity and came to this world to enter the most extreme poverty there is. As Corinthians says, he who uh, was rich became poor so that we could become rich in him. He loves us. He did that for us. He is the rich young ruler. He gave up his big all so we can give up our little all and take hold of him. Let's get gutsy this morning. I don't care what you do with the piece of paper. I don't care uh, if you even want to bring the piece of paper up here and and, and lay it on the stage. I don't care about that because God, Jesus, is looking at our hearts. And right now, God, I just uh, lift up my own heart to you. I lift up every heart that is in this room God, you've come to this world to show us life and how to have life to the abundance. So that none of us has to walk away sad this morning. And if you're putting your finger on something in our life, something specific, God, I just pray this morning that we get gutsy with that thing. God, that you'd give us the, the, the strength and the courage to, to stop looking to that thing, whatever it is, to give us life, thinking it's going to make us happy. And that we give it up and take hold of you. God, may that be going on in heart after heart after heart this morning. For the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.